Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of January 21st, 2019. On today's show, it's our 200th episode. Woohoo! In our new segment, Disney's just purchased thousands of acres of land just outside of Walt Disney World, and we have more details about the Millennium Falcon gameplay that are out. And in our main segment, Jim and I walk around Walt Disney World and Disneyland and talk about what's going on with construction and castle changes. Let's bring in the man who makes all of this possible, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? 200 episodes? Really? Our fabulous producer, Aaron Adams, reminded me of this right before we started recording. This is our 200th show together, Jim. Jim, we've we've made it work. Wow. Low these many years. <laughs> I'm stunned. Four or five of those shows are still entertaining, right? <laughs> I think there's a couple of them I still listen to. Yeah. I was—I uh, don't know if I told you the story, Jim, but I was in line right before Christmas, mm -hmm. in line for smoked fish at Zabar's in New York. Okay. And I was uh, 54th, I believe, in line mm -hmm. for the smoked fish. And I was tweeting out like the relationships that had formed in the line <laughs> while we were waiting waiting for our fish. And I, I joked at the time that by the time I got to order the fish, it was now it was like the eighth longest commitment I'd ever made in my entire life. <laughs> But Jim, you're in the top five now. Congratulations. Well, there we go. <laughs> and someday to celebrate, we're going to have to go to Zabar's. I mean, I've been hearing about that <sighs> New York shop for decades. Is it? Is it really it, everything it has, they say it is? Or it is an institution. Yes. Oh. Uh, so the funny thing is, is so I've I've, been, I've lived like six months out of the year in New York uh, for the last two years. Right. But uh, Laurel and I actually uh, had this conversation a while ago. It's like, what what are the things that actually lived up to the hype? Mm -hmm of moving to New York and what, what were the things that surprised you? So the things that we thought were like, were absolutely true about living in New York is two things came to mind. One, mm -hmm. the food is actually as good as, as people say, like there are pizza and hot dogs and restaurants in New York mm -hmm. that don't have a parallel anywhere else mm -hmm. in the United States and smoked fish at Zabar's is one of them. Actually, Eli's on the East side too. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that the, the thing that surprised me that's the most was New York is a series of little neighborhoods in which 8 million people live. So in my little four block radius, I know most of the people that I see every day mm -hmm. by first name on a first name basis, which you would not think happens in New York. But like, I know my pizza guy by name. I know my halal guy by name. There's a guy who works at the fairway market whose son goes to the same school I went to because mm -hmm. I wore my shirt there the one day. His name's John. Ask him about his kids or there. You know, it's, it's, it is it. New York is a series of little neighborhoods in which 8 million people live. Honestly, one of my favorite moments out of the Will Ferrell movie, Elf, is when Sa mm -hmm. Santa is giving Will Ferrell's character advice before he, he leaves the North Pole and he's, he's going to New York to find his father. And literally one of those pieces of advice is, all right, if you're going for pizza, go to the to Ray's. Not the other Ray's, but, you know, this Ray's. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And there, there are multiple Ray's I just, as I, well. I just love that, that even Santa was a New Yorker. It's like, no, 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 don't go there. Go <laughs> here. Go so. There are several Ray's, mm -hmm. right? There's the original Ray's and then there's a the Ray's, right? Yeah. There we go. It's fantastic. All right, Jim, uh, since it's our 200th episode, mm -hmm. I thought we should start something new here around this. Let's do a shout out to our old and our new subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. I would like to recognize now, James, our first ever subscribers, oh. Melissa D, mm -hmm. John S, Pat M, Timothy K, and Eric L. Jim, a little known fact about this group, mm -hmm. they're the understudies for the bears who perform at the Country Bear Jamboree. <laughs> it's, it, it's true. When the lead bears go off to hibernate every winter, Melissa, John, Pat, Timothy, and Eric step into the costumes, take over, and nobody notices a thing. Oh. That's what professionals do, Jim. Oh. That's what professionals do. 
Also, I'd like to thank our newest subscribers, Aaron W., Kelly R., and D.D. Another true story, Jim. Mm -hmm. All three of them were former Disney College program cast members. Their summer jobs were to sit behind the wall at the Frontierland Shooting Arcade and make sounds like gunshots <laughs> every time someone played the game. <laughs> Hard work, Jim, but valuable skills were learned. I'm pretty sure I have told you the David Mumford story about, you know, again, it, it's kind of ironic on the heels of Bob Iger, you know, making his, uh, doing the interview he did in the past week for, for Barron's. And <laughs> Jim, that was the third rail I wasn't going to touch okay. this week. <laughs> Go ahead. But you know, Go again, ahead. just talking about how if we're making attractions, if we're going to do it, it's all about Disney IP. And I just remember David was, you know, they were talking about bringing different Disney IP into the parks. And at one point, David, who was a great dog lover, one of his friends put together a proposal for the old Yeller shooting gallery. <laughs> Oh, I think you've mentioned this before, yes, but so. I, I, I think I mentally blocked it. So, <laughs> please don't call the ASPCA. This is seriously did this happen to David Mufford years and years ago? But anyway, back to our two hundredth show. Holy cow! All right, Jim. Let's do some uh, some news and listener questions. Mm -hmm. Our uh, Disney Dish news and listener questions mm -hmm. are brought to you by Storybook Destinations, a trusted travel partner of Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. And don't forget they're doing a Disney cruise with our friend Scott over at the Disney Cruise Line blog, June 19th to the 23rd. Should be a lot of fun. Fortnite Bahamian Cruise mm -hmm. on the Dream. Double dip at Castaway Key. All right, Jim. Ron A. writes in with news this week. It seems Disney has gone on a land purchasing spree in the last few weeks in Florida, buying up more than 2,500 acres east of Celebration. Is this for conservation offsets, future park resort and development, or what? I'm hearing that, yes, this is once again construction offset for wetlands. Yep. Now, where they're supposedly developing, have you heard about this? The only thing that surprised me about this particular purchase that Ron is talking about, it is it is literally the parcel that is immediately east of the town of Celebration, which Disney used to own. Mm -hmm. And of course, I, I live in Celebration mm -hmm. six or seven months out of the year. The one thing that interests me about it is this. There's literally no vacancy mm -hmm. in any apartment in Celebration. Okay. Like there's more demand to live here mm -hmm. than there is available space to live. So of all of the places that Disney could buy land in and around Central Florida, if they needed to do a wetlands offset mm -hmm. purchase, why not pick something in the middle of nowhere? Why pick that particular location and do it? That's my only question about this whole thing. No, I get that. I do. And face it, Florida is basically all wetlands. Yeah, every everything south of Jacksonville is basically the Everglades. And it's just a matter of moving the dirt around to build things That's on it. That's it, exactly. So what you bring up about the fact that there is, in fact, this very big need for apartments and for more homes and that sort of thing in celebration. But remember, Disney de-annexed celebration. They kind of washed their hands of the property. In fact, I, I remember being at Celebration the morning after Disney had sold it. And the icon for Celebration was that water tower that said Disney and Celebration. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the night, somebody in Disney's employee had climbed up to that water tower and draped a tarp over it. And so now all it said was Celebration, not Disney's Celebration? Yeah. I've been hearing stuff in regards to... The Disney Mall. Do you remember the Disney Mall plan from the late... I don't think we've ever talked about this, no. Oh, dear. All right, so do it briefly, and then we'll have to do an episode. Okay. As part of the late 80s, early 90s take on what Disney wanted to do on property, 
They wanted to do a destination mall. Like Mall of America type thing. But the idea was it was going to be anchored by brands you'd never seen before stateside, like Harrods, like Michikashi. <laughs> like World Showcase, but as a mall. <laughs> I've, I, have, I have mixed feelings about this, Jim. <laughs> I do as well. But a couple of pieces of concept art that are out there among the, the entertainment offerings at this were basically the Orlando Eye. Disney is kind of looking at what the resort has for offerings. Now think about it. We've got two water parks. We've got four theme parks. What's going to get that next day and a half out of folks? And, you know, we're just putting the button, so to speak, on Disney Springs. I mean, NBA experience will finally be open later this year. And sometime in two... Paleo is supposed to open at some point. Yeah. Yeah, and... 2020 will finally get the new Cirque show up and running. But for the 50th anniversary, talking about what they're going to do next, what if they were to create something that would appeal both to people staying at Walt Disney World and locals? That's supposedly what's behind this, that they are, you know, they've circled back on the giant destination mall idea, but the notion being. That it would be on that side of the highway? Oh, okay. Well, if they do it on that side of the highway, too, going back to the point about conservation uh, land offsets, Mm -hmm. any development they did there wouldn't count against the development that they did on the Walt Disney World property proper, right? That's my understanding. But again, Mm. you know, I'm trying, uh, you know, I didn't... This is what lawyers get paid for, Jim? Yes. All right. All right, Jim, we all know that the internet is like a giant series of pipes all connected together through which information flows like water. And there's information floating around now about the gameplay of Galaxy's Edge. Remember a few episodes back where we discussed the gameplay of the Millennium Falcon ride at Galaxy's Edge and you were talking about how uh, Disney was trying to make sure that if you wait in line for six hours to ride the ride, you're not going to crash out within 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. So we got more information today about the actual gameplay. And this is related to the controls that you will have as you're flying the Millennium Falcon. So there is some information floating around that describes uh, exactly what the co-pilot and pilot get to see on this. And it looks like the way that it's been described to us, each pilot and co-pilot get uh, roughly eight different controls. So if you're familiar with the Millennium Falcon, you know that you've got sort of like the steering wheel thing that both the pilot and the co-pilot will have. There are obviously throttle. There's a throttle that the pilot has to handle. The co-pilot has to handle air brakes or speed brakes. Mm -hmm. There's a landing gear. There's deflector shields. There's also a weapon system (laughs) and some other basic indicators that show you like how you're flying, like whether you're flying levelly, whether you're banking or turning or whatever, and a few other things. Jim, a couple of things I'd like to ask you about, or a couple of things I'd like to note here. Number one, it's not an exact replica of the one in the movies, as far as I can tell. It's got about two-thirds of the actual controls as the actual Millennium Falcon as documented in Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. But it's about twice as realistic as what Lucasfilm, Lucasfilms brought to the San Diego Comic-Con just this past July. Each person has about eight controls. And as, as far as I can tell from these eight controls, five of them, four or five, actually seem like they will do things in the game. Mm-hmm. And also, did you notice that there's a communications channel on the console? Mm-hmm. What kind of gameplay is Disney going for here? The key to understanding what Disney's done here is repeatable gameplay. Mm. The notion is 
that there is infinite variety. I mean, if you think about these five date controls that a person can actually control, and remember, we're talking about a three and a half minute long experience. By the time people are loaded and, you know, there's not a whole lot of time to work on this stuff. So you get in the, the cockpit and that three and a half minutes are up almost immediately. And all you can think of is like, oh, I want to go back. Key difference between this and say flight of passage is it's basically a passive experience. Right. This buries the needle in the exact opposite direction. <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. I'm looking at the diagram here of, of what it is. And here's what I'm assuming. The first time you go in, you're basically going to try and steer the ship. Right. Maybe you'll do throttle. Mm -hmm. Maybe you'll do brakes. Yep. But on subsequent trips, you're going to act like I do anytime I get anywhere near a control panel. Mm -hmm. And you're going to ask yourself the question, what does this switch really do? Mm -hmm. Right. And you're going to start pushing buttons to see what happens. And eventually you'll figure out this button does this. Like not only do we have the ability to bring up deflector shield controls, mm -hmm. but there are eight of them. Right. So if we're getting shot at from the front, we would do something different than if we get shot at from behind. Right. Or if we're going into an asteroid field, we would put the deflector shields up in front, not in the back, things like that. I think my guess is that's what the gameplay is. Like as you play more and more and you learn more and more, or frankly, if you ask cast members for tips more and more, they're <laughs> yes. probably that's, that's how it's going to be. Right. right? <laughs> I mean, this is Toy Story Man Midway Mania all over again, <laughs> that they'll be able to tell you, you know, hey, if you turn the weapon selector from this to this, you know, you'll go from uh, cannons to missiles or something like that, right? And that might be the key to defeating a particular enemy. So I think, yeah, your, your point is exactly right that they've put in these controls for variability and rewritability. My big concern is if it's going to be three to six hours to wait in line, and I'm not making this up, right? If it's three to six hours to wait in line for a four and a half minute ride, could you become an actual airline pilot before you learned how to fly the Millennium Falcon completely? Could you take off and land a small plane? Could you acquire <laughs> the training needed to take off and land a small plane by yourself in the time that it takes to learn how to fly the Millennium Falcon if you had to stand in line at Galaxy's Edge? Nancy and I have owned a Subaru Forester for four years now. I still can't figure out how to operate the heating system in the thing. <laughs> it's only three knobs, but I can't, for the life of me, figure it out. There's a, there's eight combinations. I, I can't go through all yes. of that. I don't know what it is. I'm literally going to be the person who leaves the parking brake on the entire time. <laughs> That's right. Jim, the landing gear's down. Jim, the landing gear's yes. down. Jim, the landing gear's down. <laughs> I'm going to be the, the person who makes the Kessel run with the left turn signal on the entire time. <laughs> he's, he's going around the galaxy to the left. It's fine. There we, it's go. Fine. There we go. I am super interested to, uh, to see this. Also, did you know, Jim, in a recent interview, the interview that you alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. Bob Iger said that the uh, galaxy stage is opening in June. And that corresponds to the rumors that we've been hearing about a save the date media email that's going around that says June 21st to the 23rd. Mm -hmm is the media event in Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland. So that looks to be the, right for now, the, the best guess as to the approximate time frame. And for it let's not overlook the other chunk of news that sometime over the past couple of months, we have seen the language change for the Disney World version from late fall. Late fall. To fall. To fall, right. Remember, this time last year, Toy Story Land was on schedule for Walt Disney World. And <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, there's a there's a still a hurricane season to come between. There we go. Uh, was it March and October? 
of this year. So don't uh, don't make any firm yeah. plans yet. We have a lot of weather related, you know, heavy weather months coming. So just as of right now, that's encouraging news, but not sure that actually means things are going to open on time. So exactly. And even if uh, Disneyland does open on time, my sense is once they open it, they will learn things that they're going to try to rush to incorporate mm -hmm. into Walt Disney World. So that might uh, push things back again. So I'm still going with my late fall prediction, Jim, but if it, uh, if it happens earlier, uh, so be it. All right, Jim, let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we will talk about our main topic, which is construction going on here in Walt Disney World and over there in Disneyland. All right, Jim, here in Orlando, I was over at the Magic Kingdom earlier today, and the Walt Disney World Railroad is now closed while construction work goes on for the new Tron coaster over in Tomorrowland. And the thing that I noticed as I was sort of walking around the park and sort of driving around the area is there's this suspiciously large pile of railroad ties sort of north of the Magic Kingdom. Mm -hmm. It seems like the park's going to take the downtime to replace all of the railroad ties all around the railroad tracks on the outside of the park. That seems to me like it's going to be much longer than a few weeks or months, right? If we were talking replacing rails for, say, 10 to 15 miles of rail system, yeah, that's a large team that's a considerable effort that would take a long time. Replacing all the railroad ties around the Magic Kingdom, they've done that previously, I want to say, in six to seven months. Oh, really? So that's short. The real issue here is making sure that the rail bed is level. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, you can't have more than a two or three degree slope on... Um... There we go. Look at you with the railroad knowledge, Jim. That was that was pretty impressive. Right? That was that was <laughs> again no math, no science. New Hampshire, but... you've you have acquired some practical skills. This is great. <laughs> on the other hand, you really want practical info on this. We need to reach out to the Carrollwood folks. These guys, they eat, sleep, and breathe the Disneyland trains, and I bet they can cite the three or four different other times over the history of the Walt Disney World Resort that the train has been shut down and the ties have been replaced, and they can give us a much better timetable. But when the, I mean, the wild card here, of course, is the Tron uh, coaster uh, construction. And, yeah. so, and that's what I think, right? So they can't actually start on repairing that section of the railroad ties mm -hmm. because they're still, literally, we've just started the construction, uh, the in-park construction for the Tron coaster. So until they get that finalized, mm -hmm. which I'm thinking is going to be six months to a year, mm -hmm. they can't finish no. that. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if the railroad was down like 12 to 18 months. It would not surprise me at all. That could be, I hate to say it, but... One of the pressure points on this will be, wait a minute, that means we can't sell tickets to our roundhouse visit. Right. So it's one of those things that where I would imagine with Disney being, in, you know, Parks and Resort being as protective as it is of its revenue streams, it's, you know, it's going to be one of those things. Yeah. Can we move this along, guys? Because we got a lot of train fares. <laughs> you know, we could be selling things, though. So. Let me let me show you Blazing Saddles as an example of how the railroad needs. <laughs> I, uh, I I fully expect Jim. By the way, um, the railroad ties to be cut up and attached to pins and sold as souvenirs. Oh. I will say one more thing. I, so I, I've been at all four parks in the last two days. Yep. The Christmas decorations are still up, which it's the middle of January now. I think they they left them up. I think because the Walt Disney World Marathon is this weekend, mm -hmm. everyone gets like one last time to see it. It's all very nice. It's either that or we've switched somehow to also celebrating Greek Orthodox Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's it's. Oh, oh. I I embrace all religions and their celebrations. Okay. I am fine with all of okay. it. So, what if that if that is the case? Yes. I am looking forward to the announcement, Jim. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, one more thing. Uh, King off of uh, this week's news, Jim. 
that Sleeping Beauty Castle in Disneyland is also closing yeah. for a few weeks. And and this apparently goes back to 2015. There was some sort of damage. Oh, God, yes. All right. <laughs> this is why you need a home warranty, Jim. This is why you need a home warranty. Well, actually, to, to be completely honest here, Len, the, the other issue that comes into play here is if you go back to 1954 and 1955, there are photographs of Walt on the construction site of Disneyland with Sleeping Beauty Castle behind him. Were it still bare wood, bare timber? I mean, there's no lathe up. The torrents are still on the ground. They haven't been lifted into place. Sleeping Beauty Castle was built very quickly and was mostly made out of wood. Now, we jump ahead to, uh, you know, the 50th anniversary. And my friend Jeff Lang was there on the night of May 4th with, uh, before they kicked off the official Disneyland sale. Remember the whole thing of the... It started on May 5th, two thousand. Five, so five, 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 you know, for the 50th. And Jeff was on Main Street at the, the end of the street as they rolled the crane in to put the five giant-sized crowns, these on top of each of the turrets to represent each of the decades. And and these things right. these things weren't light. Now jump ahead to 2060 and we have the diamond celebration and we have mm-hmm. you know all of these faux gems that are put on the building. Some of them are, you know, 12 to 18 inches, you know, across and combined additional weight placed in the roof was 4,000 pounds, Len. Yeah. Plus, I mean, they got to screw them in or nail them in or fasten them securely so that they don't fall off during uh, Santa Ana winds or something like that, right? And then just to add to the wear and tear, since 2007, and I know this started in 2007, Len, because I just did my research today and it said so in the touringplans.com. There you go. But the wintertime enchantment at Sleeping Beauty's Winter Castle, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Len, given that they use the, the word winter twice, I, this happens, what, when it's called? It's the Department of Redundancy Department. There we go. Go ahead. But same thing. The wintertime enchantment at Sleeping Beauty's Winter Castle started uh, the same year as Cinderella's Holiday Wish and Castle Dreamlights. And they make use of this pretty much the same technology, the the LEDs that are on mm-hmm. Fishnet. And, you know, the thing at Walt Disney World, some of the stats there, it's, it's 200,000 lights on over 35,000 square feet of fishnetting. So, again, lots of yep. weight supported by miles and miles of cable. And the cable weighs something too, right? Because it's got copper wiring in it. So this past fall, evidently, the inspectors went into the interior of Sleeping Beauty Castle and weren't really excited by what they saw. Mm -hmm. Evidently, the roof, which Disneyland was built so quickly, Len, that Disneyland Castle only got drainage in the 1990s. Oh, oh. Kim Irvine, who's, you know, in charge of a lot of the design at the park, she actually had to go in and design spigots that fit the building. In fact, you, the next time you're in the you know in Anaheim, look for these things. They're shaped like squirrels that are vomiting. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, they're literally <laughs> hanging off the building, and when it's raining, it's just sort of like, oh, I got a really bad acorn. That's great. So they get inside the building and they look, and it's like, oh, we need. Oh, to- <laughs> we'll never be able to sell this because it'll never pass inspection. <laughs> More to the effect, Len, if a really fat pigeon. <laughs> You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. so uh, holidays at Disneyland Resort ends this past Sunday, and in fact, after the very last showing of Sleeping Beauty's Winter Castle, under cover of darkness, they built a wall around the castle, and they're removing the holiday decorations now. And over the next six to eight weeks, you will see the scaffolding go up, and 
once a wonderful picture of the castle is in place, they are ripping off the roof and making all sorts of repairs and, and shoring the thing up because you remember how for Disneyland's 50th anniversary, every castle around the world had something to sort of tied it in with Disneyland's uh, 50th? Right, we had the mirror in uh, Disney World, the big the big giant mirror on the front of the castle, and I forget what the other castle said. Yeah. There's been some discussion of something similar being done to the castles really? around the world. Yep, for Disney World's 50th in, in 2021. And honestly, that does kind of factor into this. It's just sort of like, if we're going to put anything else that has any considerable weight as a decorative piece on this castle... We need to make some fixes, and that's what we're looking at right now. If they're worried about that, they're going to look back at history and say, look, every five to ten years, yep. we slap something on this castle. Mm-hmm. If we're going to continue to do this for the next 50 years, mm-hmm. we should take now to actually put in supports for everything. If we move to the other side of, of the globe, to Hong Kong Disneyland, which Michael Eisner, in his wisdom, the main street and the castle of that park pretty much are a carbon copy of the Anaheim version. Mm-hmm. In fact, that castle closed in 2018, and they're in the process of creating sort of a supersized version of the castle on the bones of the old Sleeping Beauty castle. And No, really? They're doing a castle expansion? Yeah. I've never heard of yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, actually, if you, you go to the Hong Kong Disneyland site today, you can view, and in fact, it, it's this weird hybrid of what they did at Walt Disney World. And remember how they created the new viewing area around the hub, and they created Mm -hmm. those outside turrets that can be used for the projection show. Mm -hmm. But they're creating an artificial lagoon so they can then add a a water component. There's a castle stage now in front of the thing, and, and when it's done, it will be tall enough so they can do a Disney World-like projection mapping show every night. Nice. Yeah, it, that's a great idea. And in fact, remember, you know, that's one of the things that does bite Disneyland in the butt is because Sleeping Beauty Castle is so short, you can't really do projection shows like you do right. at Tokyo or Walt Disney World. Though the ingenious workaround that they did for that for the 60th show when they did the projection show on Main Street, I think honestly one of my favorite moments in Disneyland Entertainment was standing there on Main Street, and you know, it went dark, and then suddenly there we, I was sur- you're surrounded by an orange grove, and it's like this is what it was. <laughs> I remember you talking about that. It was, and yeah, and you were, yeah, you you thought at the time. I remember when you said it, you thought it was like one of the greatest effects you'd ever seen. Yeah, that's exactly. So that's fantastic. So anyway, all right, that's our castle update for today. Awesome. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the update, Jim. That's going to do it for our show today. We are produced fabulously by the stupendous Aaron Adams. Don't forget to go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. Also, check out our other shows at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on our next show.